We're going to go to Psalm 15 today as we keep going through uh, our journey through book one of the Psalms. So Psalm 15, and it's a short Psalm, uh, just five verses, and we're actually going to do some of these verses uh, more than once. We're going to kind of go through them a few times. I'm actually going to do verse one before we even get to any of the points. So kind of a little bit of a different structure today. Um, and and as I as I think about that, I, I walked in this morning and I walked past the nursery, was reminded of all the effort that goes in for our kids' ministry here. It takes me back in my mind to the hundreds, maybe thousands of people who ministered to me as I was growing up through the church over and over again. And I, I, I don't even remember all of them. Uh, there were times where I was so young, I have little uh, flashes in my mind about uh, a church in Haddonfield and a church in Pittman and a church down uh, in Cedarbrook. And like, like we were all over the place and just people, all kinds of people poured their life through Awana, through Sunday school, through all kinds of things. Uh, and then growing up in Christian school and high school, um, but I remember one moment we were we were at a church in Pittman and it was a little tiny uh, church and our our kids program was a little tiny kids program I, I don't know I have I have an older brother and a younger sister and we were kind of three three like amigos we uh, my brother is is my sister's fourteen months older than I am and my brother is ten months younger than I am so the three of us were within two years of one another in fact my brother was born two days before my sister turned two so we were like always together and i believe in this particular uh kids ministry we were like half of the kids ministry you know what i mean it's like uh, but i'll tell you the, the the people who led that kids ministry were just devoted to the lord um and i remember they had a a question mark and you could pull questions out and if you got it right you got a roll of, of lifesavers or whatever i remember all of these things that went on in in my younger years and i remember one year we decided or we decided they decided we were going to have a halloween party at church and so everybody was supposed to come dressed up for halloween and i don't know if we called it halloween i don't know if that was acceptable at that time or not but whatever it was basically halloween and we were dressed up and the game walking in the game was see if the kids leaders can guess who you are in your costume right so uh, my sister and I, we dressed up as whatever. I don't even remember. It was back in the days where you had the mask and you had the little elastic strap around, you know, and the little whatever the costume was. That was the kind of costumes we had. But we had this plan. And the plan was, I believe it was my brother, was going to dress as Snow White. Now, it was not as topical as it feels. It was just trying to fool the, you know, the youth leaders. So... Um, and that, you know, we came in and we were all chuckling like, oh, they'll never guess that that's Brian. And, um, and we came in and, and they started going through and guessing who everybody was. And they guessed me and they guessed my sister and whatever. And they had my brother and, and this other kid show off, whatever. He had dressed up as the Bible, you know. So he had this giant cardboard box, like the Bible. Obviously, they couldn't guess who he was. So he got, he won the prize. He won the roll of Tootsie Rolls or whatever. And so... You know, my brother lost out on it. But the idea was, we're going to dress in a way, we're going to put on an outfit in a way that would disguise who this is, because you're going to naturally think that's a girl, but it's actually a guy, you know? And so I think about how in, in, in life, we often disguise who we are. As a matter of fact, uh, Mark Twain wrote a, a novel at the late 1800s called The Prince and the Pauper. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Two kids that look really, really a lot alike, 
one is a prince and the other is a really poor person. And somehow they, their, their lives intersect through some incidents or whatever. And they wind up swapping clothes and, and kind of mistakenly swapping lives. And obviously the prince is still a prince, but he's living in poverty because of how he's dressed and because nobody believes he's the prince because there's the prince. Clearly he's dressed like the prince. And so it doesn't change who they are, but it changes what everybody thinks about who they are how they dress, how they act, how they present themselves. And so I thought about that because we're a bunch of, you know, as a church, if you're new here today, you're welcome to be a part of the family of God, whether it's here or somewhere else, but you're welcome to be a part. But if you're a part of our church and you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you're one of God's people. Now, God's people are just people. They are messed up. They are broken. Thank God they are rescued and redeemed. But as long as we are in what Paul calls this body of death, we are going to be in a battle with sin. We're going to be in a battle with with a pull, a gravity towards what is wrong. We're going to be in a battle with our own selfishness, with our own uh, shame and guilt and failure. But what I want to say today and what I think David pulls out in Psalm 15 is this. In no way does the fact that we are in a battle ever give us the, the right or the reason to wave the white flag and just live like we're not who we are. Because if you're a child of God, how we act matters. We should act like children of God. One of the core values that we have as a church is that we value reflecting Jesus, that others would see Jesus when they look at us. And that has implications on the choices and attitudes that we have and we embrace in this life. If you want to name the name of Christ, by definition, you are saying that how I act should reflect Jesus Christ. And if you haven't thought about that in a while, I would challenge you to think about it this day. Because we can't say that we value reflecting Jesus and go and live like the devil, can we? Now, each of us have a different context. Your life is different from every other person's in here. Each of us have our own realm of, of pressures to act in some way that doesn't reflect Christ. So if you're here today and you're a student, man, I know what it's like to be a student. I know that that the pressure on you is largely a pressure of opinion of, of social groups around you that, that try to push you into either conformity or, or some kind of label. I understand the pressure that you face. If you're here today and you're going to a job later this day or or tomorrow or whatever, I understand the pressure that you face. Your context, there is a pressure to perform. There is a pressure to be measured by position and income. Do you want to get promoted? Do you want to have people working under you? And, And that's the way that you define yourself. And so we can find ourselves in these contexts that make it hard to think straight. Maybe you're a stay at home parent. Maybe you're a retired person. Maybe you're a disabled person. Maybe your background has a lot to do with it because you come from a background of trauma. Maybe you come from a different culture when you grew up. And there's all kinds of realms and ways in which our lives challenge us about this issue. Because when you boil it all down, eternally what we are is children of God. So there should be some commonality to us. There should be something that shines out through us. 
And you can say all day long, well, you don't understand how hard it is in my culture. You don't understand how hard it is in my life to live like a child of God. And I may not. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. Because the gospel supersedes every difference that we can put on the table. It is the most important thing that has ever happened to us. And because of that, it unifies us. But it calls every one of us to live in light of the good news. So if you've received Jesus, you are God's child. And you're called to live like it. In the Old Testament, God's people were the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. They were covenanted with the Lord. And and, and in my opinion, still are covenanted with the Lord. And so David writes in Psalm 15, and, and the implications that he, that he has as he writes it is that certain behaviors fit and certain behaviors do not fit. I'm not your judge. God's your judge. So I'm just going to share with you the word of God. And then I'm going to ask you to listen to the spirit of God about your life. Because you have a Lord. You have a master. You have one that you've de- devoted yourself to serve And he has the right to tell you whether these things are okay or not, doesn't he? So I would challenge you, open your heart. Because these aren't issues of personality. A lot of times we excuse things that need to go out of our lives by saying, well, that's just my personality. These aren't issues of preference where it's like, well, I just like this and you like that. and We're just different people and that's that's not what this stuff is. This is calling from God that we don't get to excuse ourselves from. The calling of God to live like who I am. So start with me just at verse 1. David starts it with a question and he says this. Lord, who may dwell in your sacred tent? Who may live on your holy mountain? So he kind of just, he asks this question, who? Who can dwell in your sacred tent? Who can live on your holy mountain? Uh, Dwell, when you hear that word dwell, like dwelling, it has this idea in, in our heads of permanence, but that word actually talks much more about a temporary stay. It doesn't talk about uh, moving in and, and living there on a permanent basis. It talks about to be an invited guest into someone else's home. And who may dwell in your sacred tent talks about who have you invited to be a part. It's your place, God. Who have you invited in? So basically, poetically, what he's saying is, who does God invite in? What kind of people belong in God's house? What kind of people belong near God? And when you boil it all down, what he's basically asking is, how are God's people identified? What do they look like? How would you know this person belongs in the house of God? This person belongs invited to be a part. This person belongs to God. What do God's people do that make them different? What do they not do that sets them apart? How do people know that they belong to the Lord? Now, it has a dramatic feel for the people of God, for, you know, people who back in the day, they saw the temple all the time and they would approach it and do business in it and whatever. Kind of like you coming to church today, I doubt many of you were shaking in fear walking in the door. Some of you might have been. I've talked to some people before who were like, if I go to church, the building's going to fall in on me. I've heard that a lot of times from people. Um, and it doesn't fall in on you because it's not about that, but you're pretty comfortable here, right? But think about If you're in a culture where once a year the high priest has to go in to the holy, holiest place. And if he goes in, but he's not 
taking care of business. If something is left undone, if he does something improperly, he could be struck dead when he walks in. And the only thing you can think of as a, as a nation to deal with that is to tie a rope around his foot so that if he stops moving, oh, and bells around the bottom of his garment so you can hear him, and if the bells stop ringing, you got to start pulling on the rope because you can't go in. I think we've lost some of that sense of awe of what it means to be in the presence of Almighty God. And you live in His presence. You know what the Bible says in the New Testament? You are the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. I wonder how often those words register with us. And it's interesting that he even says, who will dwell in your sacred tent? Because it's just a tent. I mean, it was a fancy tent, but it was just a tent. It wasn't a scary place because of the skins or because of the poles or the posts. It was a place that was sacred, not because of the tent, but because of who lived in the tent. And you're a child of God and you're nothing special. You're just flesh and bones. You're just a person. You're just like everybody else. But you know what? If you're a person that belongs to God, someone lives in you. And that makes you sacred, holy, Have you ever asked yourself what is appropriate for someone who is holy? Someone who is righteous? Someone in whom the presence of Almighty God lives? And so the presence of God is in us. Does it show? It should. And so here's what David writes. So verse 2, he kind of gives four areas, or I'm going to pull out four areas from the things that he writes, because he writes like 11, uh, 10 or 11 different little elements of these things. And it's not meant to be, this is exactly everything that it takes to look like you belong to God. These are the people that, that are invited in. These are the people that are clearly God's people. It's not meant to be a comprehensive list, but it's meant to give you a taste And in giving you a taste to challenge you is my life like this. So first thing I want to read is verse 2, and it says this. Who who may live, who may dwell? The one whose walk is blameless, who does what is righteous, and speaks truth from their heart. Those first two things there, blameless and righteous, tell me this. The people of God are marked by how they live. Our way of living reflects whether or not we are God's child to this world. Now, it may be that you're God's child and your way of living doesn't reflect that. That's possible. And if it's you, you're pretty miserable. I can tell you that right now. Because there is nothing more miserable than being one thing and acting like another thing. Than trying to make excuses about how everybody else is trying to make you do this, this, this. But the battle's really in here. And you keep fighting the battle out there like it's out there, but the battle's in here because you're not acting like who you are. And these overarching qualifications, these overarching ideas of who the people of God are use these two words, blameless and righteous. Blameless. Does that mean that we have to be entirely perfect? The word itself means whole, entire, free from blemish. So it seems like what God is saying is, if you want to be my, one of my people, if you want to live and act like one of my people, you should do no wrong. But that's not exactly what it means. Because obviously, we stumble often. 
the meaning is simply more like this. It refers to one who lives with integrity. Who lives like what they say matters actually matters. Like what they say is valuable is actually valuable. And so the, the course of their life is consistently in one direction. And it is a Godward direction. Is the direction of your life Godward? In other words, you, get, you leave this place today and you go out about your business. Is your life Godward as you go out and go about your business? Or is it me-word? Do you live for bigger things? Do you live for your Lord and Savior? Or do you live not for Him? Do you live like what you say matters actually matters? So when these folks make mistakes, they don't ignore them. They don't cover them. They address them. And they try to learn how to do what is right. That's the other word that's there, the word righteous. It is a person who values knowing and doing right in such a way as to consistently act righteously. This is not a person who does what looks right when people are watching. It is not someone who knows how to come in and act the right way and worship and pour out their heart to God and then go out and act like God doesn't even exist. It is not someone who segregates Sunday morning worship from Monday morning business. A righteous person is someone who pursues what is right, honors it and values it and lives it because my God is righteous. My Father is righteous and I'm His child. The concept here is that if we name the name of Jesus and we call ourselves His, we should live like we're His. Like what is right matters on its own. Wrong is wrong and we want no part of it. Like God is our Lord and God is our leader and we are seeking His will, His direction in everything. So this is the overarching idea that David starts out with. The one whose walk is blameless, the one who does what is righteous. The overarching idea of someone who belongs to God is that their lifestyle is noticeably godly. Not for a show, but because it really matters to them. So I'm asking us today, is the pattern of our life an evidence that we've been set free? That we've been redeemed? That our eternal home, that the real home of our life is heaven, that we live for heaven and not for this earth? Is that evident or hidden? Are we one person Acting like another? Are we disguising ourselves? Then he gets a little more nitty gritty. I'm going to read verse 2 again because the, the last phrase there uh, actually picks up the next topic and all the way down to 4. So here's what it says. The one whose walk is blameless, the one who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from their heart, whose tongue utters no slander and who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. What David says next is this. Your life should be blameless. Your life should be righteous. That should be the direction and the passion of your life to live in a reflection of who you've been born again into their family. But let's talk nitty gritty. What comes out of your mouth marks you. What you say or what you don't say defines or 
illustrates to people around you whether or not you belong to God. What comes out of your mouth? And so he has a couple categories here. He talks about someone who speaks the truth from their heart. God's people speak the truth. I know that sounds so simplistic, but it's amazing how often that gets shaded, isn't it? God's people speak the truth. And I'm not saying we use that as a way to speak in a harsh and cutting way to destroy people. But the idea here, the concept here is that what comes out of my mouth is reliably true, at least to the best of my ability. I may be mistaken. I may not remember uh, clearly. But as far as I can tell you, what I'm saying to you is what I believe and what I think is true. The people of God, their words should be true. And so you come into church and this should be a place where the people of God, man, I hate this. The people of God do not have to read in between the lines with one another. They don't say one thing but mean a different thing and hope that you pick up what they actually mean instead of what they're saying. Now, a lot of you love that. That's your, that's your place. That's where you swim. You, you love doing that stuff. I hate that. I, and I, maybe some of this is personality because I'm built this way, but you tell me something and I'm going to believe it because you said it. And there are people who are like, no, there's no problem. There's no problem. And I'm supposed to know there's a problem. Guess what? I'm not that smart. I don't know there's a problem because you told me there isn't. People of God, we need to be people who say the truth, who mean what we say and say what we mean. We should be valuing honesty and integrity. I was talking about the other day with somebody. You know, there, there are temptations in our world that may seem like opportunities for you to get rich. Let me ask you this. How much money would it take for you to lay down your integrity on your taxes on an insurance form. How much money is your integrity worth? Well, nobody will know. I'll never get caught. Oh, oh, I forgot. That's the big deal, right? Whether you get caught or not. People of God should have hearts to do what is right, to say the truth. I shouldn't be worried about whether I can get away with a lie. I want to get away from lies, right? But how often do the people of God act like the truth is just something that I'll use whenever I need to use it? He says that people of God utter no slander. Man, this should be crushing for the church of Jesus Christ because the reputation in the body of Christ to outsiders is that we chew one another up and we've got all kinds of bad things to say about all kinds of people, which is the definition of the word slander. What comes out of my mouth about other people speaks in a way that tears others down. Is that us? I know that 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 juicy bit of gossip, that that latest bit of shocking information, and I just, oh, I want to share it. And I want, you know what I'll do? I'll share it as a prayer request. So it sounds spiritual instead of slanderous. I just want to talk about, could you pray for so-and-so because did you hear what happened? Like that thing. Inside of us, that gets all riled up about it and we want to let people know. People of God, when we recognize that we serve the one who died for the person that we're tempted to tear down, it stops us in our tracks. 
You serve a Lord who gave his life for that person that you're about to rip to shreds. Are we following him? Are we his or not? Then he talks about they cast no slur. The the literal interpretation is does not raise a reproach. And I guess the best way to talk about this, there's a lot of nuance to it, but the best way to talk about this is to say this is what it means. That I have the opportunity to place shame on someone to the degree that they are in some way an outcast or an outsider. What I say about them to people separates them from the community because I have put shame on them. I have the power to mark them with shame. And what David says is God's people don't mark people with shame. Do we? In in social circumstances, sometimes that's a useful tool. Because I can be in and they can be out. I can be the one who's close at the expense of them being far away. And it feels like, okay, I'll make that deal. People of God, we don't make that deal. We don't mark someone with shame because we have the opportunity to do that. We refrain from that because that's someone for whom Christ died. And I've got my own shames, my own guilts, and he took them away. And he'll take theirs away too. I don't want them to live with that, do you? I want them to live rescued and redeemed and freed because I value salvation. I value life. I value hope, do you? So why would I speak shame when I value life? Why would I speak guilt when I value forgiveness? When I've embraced it for myself, why would I try to reject it from other people? People of God, we have to act like we believe what we say we believe. If you've been forgiven and you've been set free, how can I look at anybody else and think, I hope you're not? Verse 4, he talks about he keeps an oath even when it hurts and doesn't change their mind. That kind of hurts, doesn't it? A child of God is serious about their words, about their oaths. When we give our word, we mean it and we keep it. And I love that, even when it hurts. Because the idea is, I go back on my word when it doesn't suit me to follow through on it. You know, when I made the deal, I thought it was going to work out for me. I was good with how all the terms that felt fair to me. But now I'm not that interested in it. And so my own selfishness gets in the way. My own grab for comfort gets in the way. And it gets hard to do what I said. So I just say, well, I'm not going to do it. That is not the way people of God act. When I tell you and I give my word to you, I don't stop back from it. I don't hold back from it. I don't change my mind and turn away from it just because I don't want to do it anymore. I come through on it. And so we make promises all the time and then we excuse ourselves from them. People of God, this is not the way we should live. And I, you know, big promises, yeah, I I get that. How about little promises? You're talking with somebody after the service today and you say, I'll pray for you. Do you? I'm here for you. If you need anything, reach out, let me know. I'm here for you. Are you? Or is that just stuff I say? who keeps an oath even when it hurts and does not change their mind. People of God are marked by what they say and what they don't say. I think the Holy Spirit can talk to you 
about if things have been coming out of your mouth that shouldn't have been, or things haven't been coming out of your mouth that should have been. The next category, verse 3, verse 5, let me read them to you. Back to verse 3 again. It says, whose tongue utters no slander, who does no wrong to a neighbor and casts no slur on others. Verse 5, who lends money to the poor without interest, who does not accept a bribe against the innocent. Whoever does these things will never be shaken. Not just our words, but our actions, Marcus. What you do and what you don't do marks you as whether you are God's child or not. Now again, let me not be any way unclear. You are God's child because you have received salvation through Jesus Christ by faith alone. You have recognized you're a sinner. You have recognized that your eternal destination is hell. And you've come and said, Lord, save me. And because of the death of Christ on the cross, he washes you clean. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he makes you new. That all happens by faith apart from works. However, if you are a child of God and you're acting like you're not, that's a problem. It's a problem for you. It's a problem for the people around you. But it's really a problem for the God you represent. Because if you name the name of Christ, what you are doing is you're carrying a banner saying, this is my God. And if you live like your God is not the God that you claim... You bring disgrace to his name. The one who saved you, the one who died for you, the one who made you, the one who rescued you eternally, you bring shame to his name. That's a problem, people. So it's not just the words, it's how I act. And so David says, the one who can can come near and live in the temple, the one who can draw near to God, the one who belongs in the family of God is someone who does no wrong to a neighbor. I guess what you could say about this is how we treat other people is one of the clearest marks of whether or not we're God's people. Who does no wrong to a neighbor. And as I think about that, I think, you know, I think Jesus thought that too. Because he said, here's the two greatest commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all the law and the prophets. Then later on, the night before he died, in John 13, he said, This is the command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. By this will all men know you are my disciples if you love one another. He told a parable about a Samaritan when someone came to him and said, You know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I've kept the law. And Jesus said, What do you understand the law to be? And he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, Yep, do that. And he said, Well, who is my neighbor? He told this story about this man who got beaten and left on the side of the road and the people of God left him aside. But the one who was excluded, the outcast, is the one who picked him up and took him and paid for him and cared for him and treated him like he mattered. Then Jesus says at the end of the parable, go and do likewise. Who is your neighbor? Oh, it's the one who lives next door. Well, that wasn't somebody living next door. The idea is God's going to bring you to neighbors every day. The people you bump into, the people you're around, the people that you see in need. The people of God have to recognize that our Lord said, it matters how I treat people. The other person matters to me because I cannot isolate my relationship from God with my relationship with my neighbor. 
It is never separated in the word of God. Well, you're, it's okay for you to treat people like garbage, but you still worship God. Never. As a matter of fact, there are times in the New Testament where it says if you've got a problem with somebody and you're here to worship, you should get up and leave and go solve the problem with the person and then come back and worship. Which is a terrible advice if, if a profit center is what you're looking for. Because he says, take your offering and don't offer your offering until you make it right. In other words, don't bring your stuff into the temple because you cannot segregate your worship from God with your treatment of others. They are connected, intricately connected. And so I care about their well-being. Their, what benefits them is important to me. I can't do wrong to them even when they do wrong to me. And this is where we get hung up a lot. Someone treats you badly and you're like, fine. You want to see bad treatment, here you go. And we think we're justified in that. Even though the scripture is very clear about turning the other cheek, about don't take vengeance, uh, about as much as is possible, live at peace with all men, uh, don't repay evil with evil, but overcome evil with good. Scripture is very clear about this. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, because God forgave you. Over and over, it's in the scripture. But we feel very justified in when someone treats me wrong, that I treat them wrong in return. It is a choice that God calls us to make that I do not wrong my neighbor, even if they wrong me. And Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 8. How can we choose an action that destroys or hurts someone for whom Christ died? If you don't believe me, read it. 1 Corinthians 8. How in the world would the people of God feel that it is okay, that is justifiable for me to hurt or destroy someone for whom Christ died? Christ died for them. How can I hurt them? He says, who lends money without interest and doesn't accept a bribe against the innocent. In that society, it was very stratified. We feel like ours is stratified, but I'm telling you, this was a stratified society. It was the desperately poor against the unbelievably wealthy. It was the powerless and the powerful, and there was nothing in between. And so when somebody would come and need money, those with advantage, those with money, could say, well, I'll lend you money, but I'll lend you money with interest. Well, they don't have the money to begin with. And when they charged interest, it is recorded that they charged interest commonly of 33% or more commonly 50% interest because they were desperate. And so the powerful people would use their power to destroy the poor people. And the normal path of a poor person's life was into slavery because you can't make it on your own, so eventually you're going to borrow money and you're going to be indebted to the place where you just sell yourself as a slave. People of God refuse to take advantage of the blessings that we have and use it as a way to get something from other people. Instead, we see everything that we have as belonging to God and coming from God, so I can't selfishly use it all for myself. I've been given it. I must look at how can I give it like God has given it to me. I adopt God's heart towards those in need so that the helpless, when they come to me, I'm able to help them as God has helped me. And they don't accept a bribe against the innocent. In other words, I'm in a powerful position, but I don't use my powerful position as a way to enrich myself. I use my powerful position in a way to do what is right. 
in this psalm, which this psalm is really about being ready to enter God's presence, about being ready or prepared or, or rightful to go in and worship, it seems to have a lot to do about how we treat other people, doesn't it? Maybe you came today and you didn't feel ready for worship because you've got you know, negative emotions and, and you're hurting and you're, you're down or whatever, so I must not be ready to worship. Maybe you're not, you feel like I can't go to church and worship because I haven't brought money or, or I, I don't know the right things to say or I, I missed a couple weeks or whatever. But maybe being ready for worship isn't about any of those things. Maybe being ready for worship is not about how you dress or what songs you like or what songs the church is singing or even which church you attend. From David's perspective right here, it starts with a large portion of how you treat your neighbor as to re- whether or not you are ready to come and give honor to the Lord. Who are God's people? They are people that are lifestyle marked because they live for what is right. Their words mark them, their actions mark them, and their values mark them. Verse 4 just says this, who despises a vile person but honors those who fear the Lord. We are marked by what we value and what we don't. The, the, The godly person, the person of God, does not embrace or honor or celebrate someone who celebrates or champions wickedness. Now, this is a tough one. Because we live in a world where the music and the entertainment and even the styles out there celebrate what is wrong. How do we live in that world and not celebrate along with it? That's a challenge to us. But instead, what we need to do is honor people who honor the Lord. We honor those who fear the Lord. And so... We don't go and chase after and model our lives after people who are rejecting what God says is right, but we do look up to and and look for guidance from people who have adopted what God says and have decided to live in His way. And closes it by saying, these people, whoever lives like this, will never be shaken. And I I think there are a lot of people who call themselves Christians who walk around wondering where they stand with God. They are less sure than they should be that they are children of God. And some of you are sitting here and you've been wrestling with doubts. Am I really a believer? Am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? And maybe those doubts have nothing to do with whether you actually are. Maybe they have a lot to do with the the choices that you've been making about your value system, about your actions, about your words. Because the sense is, you walk into the the, the presence of God, you walk into worship God, and you will never be shaken if you live like this. So maybe living like who you are makes you more sure about who you are. And maybe like living like who you aren't makes you less sure about who you are. Maybe it's as simple as that. You want to know for sure that you're a child of God? You want to know for sure that you belong in His presence? Live like it. And let the Spirit of God bring convincedness to your soul. We're going to close with a song today, and there might be business you've got to take care of. This song is really a prayer, and I, I think maybe it's a prayer that some of you need to pray while it goes on. Maybe some of you afterwards are going to want to pray, and, and you feel free to come up. And if there's something that God's Spirit is really hammering in your soul, don't leave your seat and don't leave this room without dealing with it today. Because what we've talked about is about how the people of God need to live like the people of God. 
Not a list that's in its entirety, but as I'm talking to you and as we're reading Psalm 15, maybe the Spirit of God is coming to you and to your soul and saying, now this, let's deal with it. Let's get rid of this thing. Let's acknowledge that it's wrong and it needs to go. And so I'm asking you today, what in your life needs to go? What is not fitting for the child of God? What is not blameless or righteous? Maybe it's more specific. Maybe it's the words that you've been saying. What do your words say about where you stand? How are you with the truth? Is that what comes out of your mouth or are you pretty comfortable with shades of gray? How about your actions? What do your actions say about your place as a child of God? Do you live in a way that shows honor and value to your neighbor or do you live self-centered? Our Lord didn't live self-centered, do we? And what do people think when they look at your life matters to you the most? What do they think you value? Does that need to change? So today I invite you, as this song is sung, let the Spirit of God work in your life. If you need to bow your head where you are, if you just need to have a conversation with Him, let God work in us. Let's let Him strip away what needs to go. Let's let Him restore what needs to come. Let's let God be our Lord this day.